Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray for those who this weekend are remembered for their sacrifice of service and the defense of us and our freedoms. We thank you, Father, for their uh, willingness to make that sacrifice. For those who continue to do so in the way that they may turn aside from opportunities in the business world and in family time and in other things of life that we take for granted, Father, they put those aside. As Paul says, to please the one who's enlisted their service. And Father, how appropriate is it that Paul would use a picture of the military person's service as a way of explaining our own service, for so much is similar. We too, Father, are asked by Scripture to set aside the pursuit of everyday life in the way that the world would typically pursue it, so that we might pursue Christ instead, pursue the knowledge of him, to pursue his grace, to pursue, Father, the opportunity to be his ambassador to a world that desperately needs to know the truth. And we do that, Father, at the sacrifice of self. For what we want is often in contrast to what you want. Just as what our society might want is in contrast to what a military person might have to do in service. So, Father, we take our inspiration from that analogy. We consider the sacrifices made by those who have put their lives on on the line for us in wartime and in peacetime. And, Father, we we want to model ourselves on that picture for your sake as well, putting our lives at your disposal, becoming living sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, unconcerned for when and how you might choose to take us home, but making every day count in the meantime. Not being afraid, Father, but being confident in the hope of what you've promised would follow our lives here on this earth. And we look forward to that day, that eternity we spend with you. So, Father, I pray that in our study as we go into Matthew, would reinforce this understanding that our life here on earth is not the thing we grasp, but rather, Father, we give it up willingly for the greater things to come. And learning about those greater things, Father, inspires us even more to to be obedient to that call and to have a courage to answer it. So we thank you in advance for what we'll learn and for how it will encourage us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, back in our study of Matthew. Now, if you're new to our study today, I don't know if that's possible. Maybe somebody has dropped in on our study at this late time in the uh, two and a half years, by the way, that we've been in this study. Well, if you have joined us now, you've picked a great time because at the end of chapter 23, where we are now, and going into chapters 24 and beyond, you'll find some of the most monumental things that happen in all of the story of Christ on earth. You're now in the final week of Jesus' earthly life here with us at this point in the gospel. We're just a couple of days away from Passover on the Jewish calendar. It's a Tuesday afternoon of that week, and Jesus has just spent the better part of the last three days teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. And in that time, he's been speaking to large crowds who've come to hear his teaching, but he's also been enduring the constant harassment and inspection of the religious leaders of Israel who've come to discredit him. Jesus sparred with these men in the course of four encounters, which we've been studying, and after all of that was over, he emerged triumphant and unindicted by their inspection. He demonstrated he was above reproach, and as such, he was the spotless lamb of God, qualified to die for the sins of Israel and the whole world. That's where we are now. And at the end of that final exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders, which comes at the end of chapter 
23, he delivered a scathing rebuke, which is what we studied last week. And if you remember, he pronounced seven woes on those men, ending with the seventh last week. And in those woes, he judged them for their hypocrisy and for the way that they have led this generation of Israel against their own Messiah and into their own judgment. They misled the people, they robbed them of their wealth, and ultimately they robbed them of the Messiah and the kingdom. And so Jesus declared those men would pay the ultimate price for their sin, they'd be excluded from the kingdom, and they would face their future in hell, he said. Now here we are getting ready to see the final statement that Jesus makes to the nation of Israel before his death. Now before we look at that, I want to take you back briefly to something that happened roughly six months earlier in Jesus' ministry. It occurred at the end of chapter 12 in Matthew's Gospel. Now at that point, there was a moment of great significance in Jesus' ministry, a moment that was pivotal in his approach to offering the kingdom and to what followed in his time on earth. In that chapter, if you remember, Jesus performed a miracle that I call the messianic miracle. That is, it was a specific miracle that proved that he was the Messiah. And in fact, the people who watched that miracle in chapter 12 recognized the significance of it. They even responded by saying, this is the son of David, a messianic term. But as they saw it, they were met by a contrary perspective. Their own religious leaders who were present said, no, that is not proof that Jesus is the Messiah. It's proof that he was inhabited or indwelled by Satan. And the people heard that explanation, and they believed it, despite what they saw in the miracles that Jesus performed. And when that moment occurred in chapter 12, we learned back then that the unforgivable sin was committed by that generation of Israel, and as a result, they forfeited the opportunity to receive the kingdom in their day. Now, if you weren't here for all of that study when we did that a time ago, I would just recommend you go back and listen to the teaching we did on chapter 12 so that you can catch up. That's a very important moment in the entire gospel of Matthew because in that moment, everything changed. Jesus went from offering the kingdom to Israel openly to hiding that news from Israel thereafter, and instead he spent all the time remaining preparing his disciples to inherit the kingdom program. That is, this period of history that we've now been involved in for the last 2,000 years, in which disciples of Jesus have gone out offering the kingdom in his place, mostly to Gentiles throughout the world. That began to be the focus of Christ after Israel rejected him in chapter 12. Okay, so that happened six months ago. Now, jump back to the present moment here at the end of chapter 23. It's six months later. Jesus' death is barely 48 hours away. And his public ministry has now ended. And as it does, Jesus makes one last public statement lamenting Israel's decision to reject him. And this connects us back to chapter 12. Let's begin in the text. We're in chapter 23, verse 34. And we'll see that connection here. In verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This is 
part one of a two-part statement he makes here at the end, and let's get into it. He says in these verses, essentially a footnote to the seventh woe that we studied last week. He says that these men, the Pharisees, will be guilty of having killed all the prophets. Now, here's what he means. If you remember, the seventh woe was the one in which Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for having claimed that they were more righteous than their forefathers, that in prior centuries, when the prophets came to Israel as God sent them, the leaders of Israel would persecute those men who came declaring the truth. Those men would often be uh, killed as a result of what they said. You may remember in John's gospel, John opens in that prologue of chapter one by saying that men, unbelieving men, love darkness and they hate the light. And the reason they hate the light is because it exposes their evil deeds. And that's the problem you see when prophets come to people who are in opposition to God. A prophet comes declaring the truth, exposing the sins of people, shining a light, as it were, on the sins of people. And as they see their sins reflected in the light of God's truth, they react in some cases, and in fact in many cases, by killing those or persecuting those who bring that news to them. And now you have the Pharisees, with the benefit of hindsight, claiming with hypocritical intent that if they had been alive in those earlier days, they wouldn't have made that mistake. They would have responded to the prophet's warnings. They would have come and acknowledged God and done differently. That they were more righteous than their forefathers were in that regard, and they would have obeyed the prophets. And what Jesus says is, no, those men, the Pharisees, were worse than their forefathers. Not only would they have persecuted the prophets, they did worse in their own day. And he proves that by simply indicating that they persecuted John the Baptist, who was their prophet of that time. And he also, of course, is referring to his own persecution. Here they are, the Pharisees, opposing the very Messiah sent to them. So Jesus condemned them for all of that hypocrisy. That was the seventh woe. Thinking that they were more righteous than their forefathers, when at the same time, they were actually doing worse things than their forefathers. Now in verses 34 through 36, which is what we just read, Jesus adds this footnote, and he says, he will confirm their hypocrisy, their unrighteousness, by giving them even more prophets, which they in turn will then also persecute. The religious leaders of Israel will kill and scourge these men and drive them from city to city, and some of them will even die hanging on crosses, Jesus says. And which prophets are those that Jesus is referring to? Well, of course, he's talking about the prophets of the New Testament age, which, largely speaking, are the apostles. So the book of Acts is our record of what Jesus foretold, because in the book of Acts, you see the ministry of the New Testament prophets, uh, men like Peter, of course, and James and others, and you see the fierce resistance that they faced at the hands of these same men and their successors. And so just as Jesus predicted, they were often killed, they were run from city to city. You see in Acts chapter 12, James being the first of those to die for his faith. Earlier in Acts 5, you see the apostles being scourged for their faith after having been tried by the religious leaders. Those historical accounts simply confirm both the accuracy of Jesus' prophecy and the hypocrisy of these men. And in verse 35, Jesus says, that will prove that you are guilty, not just of the blood of the men that you know, but you are equally guilty of the blood of all the Old Testament prophets that died in the similar ways. And he gives a little list here from Abel, he says, to Zechariah. Now Abel, you may remember, is the second son of Adam and Eve. Uh, his mistake, if you will, his 
his uh, sin, so to speak, was daring to speak the truth to his unbelieving brother, Cain. And as he did that, evil Cain was a witness to his righteous brother's devotion to God. It made him jealous, it prompted hatred, and so he lashed out and he killed his brother. And that was the first righteous prophet killed by an unrighteous person. But that's a pattern that actually was established with those two men that has continued on ever since. Paul refers to that pattern when he talks about another couple of brothers. In Galatians 4.29, Paul says this, but, at, uh, but as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that is a reference to Ishmael, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, and so it is now also, Paul says. In other words, Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Why? Was it just sibling rivalry? No. Paul says there was a spiritual principle at work. The one who is righteous will always be persecuted by the one who is unrighteous. That is, those of the flesh, as Paul calls them, the unbelievers, will persecute those who are born again by the spirit that is believers, and it has always been that way from Abel and Cain, and it will always be that way, Paul says. And that is why service to the kingdom, service to Jesus, always leads to persecution, at least at some level. Because when you serve God in righteousness or for the sake of righteousness, you stir up those who are opposed to God. And in Jesus' day, you see that evidenced in the fact that the Pharisees, who were born of the flesh, were opposing Jesus and persecuting John the Baptist and so on. That was their persecution of those born of the Spirit. And that just continued on with the apostles because the principle is an ever-true principle. Jesus says when that begins to happen, it will simply give evidence to prove the fact that these men, the Pharisees, are no better than their predecessors were. They share in the guilt of their fathers in that respect. You can say they share in the guilt of Cain, who killed Abel, and they share in the guilt of those who killed the rest of the prophets all the way down to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah was killed in the temple court because he had gone there seeking to uh, claim refuge, and there was a principle that if you went into the temple and you held on to the corners of the altar, you could claim sanctuary from your enemies. And he had gone there fleeing Jews who were seeking to kill him for his prophecies, but they were so evil in that day they didn't uh, respect that gesture and they killed him anyway, right there in the court of the temple, we're told. He was the final Old Testament prophet to be martyred before the advent of Messiah, before Jesus' arrival. And so the saying of Abel to Zechariah is shorthand to refer to all the prophets who were martyred from the first to the last. And it's just a happy coincidence that in English their names are A to Z. That's not necessarily a biblical issue. It just happens to work out for us. But it reinforces the point, doesn't it? So the martyrdom of the saints, and in particular the apostles, reminds us that when you follow Christ, it comes with risks. And those risks are unavoidable. As long as our world has evil people opposed to God, that love darkness and hate the light, then believers will be persecuted. Why? Because we now are that light of Christ in the world, which means we bring the same message of salvation that Jesus did, and therefore we will experience the same reactions from those we meet, from our message, that Jesus received from the delivery of his message. So you'll see a a range of responses, right? You'll see some who respond to the Lord's grace in humility, and repentance, 
and uh, some who will come with questions or doubts, and then some who just flat out oppose the gospel and persecute those who bring it. And it's been my experience, and I think this is a biblical truth, that the degree of persecution that you will receive is proportional to the degree of testimony and service that you give to the Lord. And the more fervently and persistently that you witness to the truth, the more the enemy and the world will persecute you for it. And if you are hesitant to make known your faith in Jesus, if you uh, like to hide out in the world and kind of be a church goer, you know, Christian on Sundays and the rest of the week blend in, well then you'll largely escape persecution. But at the same time, the results we achieve in our kingdom work are also directly proportional to our willingness to accept that persecution. I like to say that if you're a Christian who's never known persecution at any level, in any aspect of your life, whether that is at your workplace, or from schoolmates, or maybe from family members who don't understand this whole Christian thing, if you've never felt any kind of awkwardness or imposition or resistance or much less, you know, worse kinds of persecution, then that's just proof to you of how good you are at hiding your witness. Because the Bible says that that kind of resistance is a natural and expected response to the outward witnessing of our faith in Christ. And I'm not talking about being arrogant or being pushy or creating friction by the way you go about doing what you do. I'm just saying in your natural state as a Christian, your witness is a threat. You are light shining on darkness, exposing evil deeds, and very few people respond well to that. The ones who do are doing that, are are coming to a good response because the Spirit of God is moving them to do so. The rest of the world will oppose you. When the apostles went out with the message that God gave them, the Spirit moved through them at times to convert many thousands to the truth. But as they went out and did that work, with it came great persecution because the enemy is not gonna sit still while they go off and do that work that opposes his agenda. And when those men stepped out boldly to proclaim the, the truth, the enemy then stepped up his acts of persecution against them. That is a fundamental principle of faith. If you've been looking for a way to be a bold, witnessing Christian without receiving persecution, let me know if you figure it out, but I don't think that's ever gonna happen because the Bible says that's not possible. The most effective disciples of Jesus will be the most persecuted disciples of Jesus. And the most persecuted disciples of Jesus will be the most effective disciples for Jesus. If you follow Jesus's footsteps, you end up where Jesus went. That's the principle of scripture. And there's an important corollary to that truth. When Christians hide their witness from the world, they become weak, but more importantly, the church becomes weak and ineffective. If you make your goal blending in so as to avoid opposition, you may very well live a very comfortable life. You will likely avoid persecution. But do you know why? It's because the enemy has no reason to waste his time and resources on you. You're doing his job for him. You've silenced yourself. And so he moves on to more important targets. But in the course of that, you've also forfeited something. The Bible says that as we serve Christ well, we gain opportunity for reward. But if we shrink back from those opportunities, we may be losing those rewards. So in verse 36, Jesus now having made that point, takes a sharp turn. And the transition here is quite dramatic. And in fact, the turn that he makes here will take us all the way through the next three chapters of scripture. In verse 36, he says, all these things will come upon this generation 
And the things that he's referring to are the things we just looked at in verses 34 and 35. That is, the entire generation of Israel that he was now a part of in that day will do the same things, largely, that the religious leaders uh, will be doing. Things like persecuting those who come in the name of the Lord, scourging them, killing them. And as such, the guilt for those acts will share, be shared by this whole generation of Israel, not just by those religious leaders. And that whole generation of Israel, therefore, will experience a just and swift judgment. And what we learn now as we move out of chapter 23 and into chapter 24 is what that judgment entails and what it will lead to, not only for Israel, but for the whole world. First, he says they will fail to receive their Messiah sent to her as a result of having the unforgivable sin of chapter 12, and therefore they'll lose the opportunity to enter into the kingdom. But more than that, because they've rejected Jesus in the day he came for them, Israel will lose its place in its land. It will lose access to the temple, and it'll lose a chance to be in the land as we know it. In fact, they will enter into a time of exile as they had in the past, but this time, the exile won't be decades or even centuries. They're about to enter into a period of millennia, two millennia of exile from their land as a result of what came in this generation. That's what we're about to go learn in part, among other things. And as I said, this will take us through quite a few chapters of Matthew. It's gonna be a fascinating study. So the topic, broadly speaking, of the next several chapters is how this age will play out to the end in response to Israel's rejection of its Messiah and all the consequences or many of the consequences that will come from it. Another way to put it is simply this. Why did God bring Israel back into its land in that day? It was principally so that they could receive their Messiah when he came. So when they rejected him, then their purpose for being in the land was no longer valid. And so he sends them out again. It begs the question, then why has he allowed Israel to come back into its land today? Well, I think you know how to fill in that answer, don't you? We'll get there in time, but for now, let's start by finishing out 37 with a lament that leads us into 24, starting in verse 37. Jesus says in 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this passage may sound very familiar to you, especially if you've been with me in this study for a while, because we actually studied uh, a passage very much the same as this back in Matthew chapter 12, as I mentioned earlier. This is where these two chapters connect. Because back in chapter 12, we studied that moment in which Israel officially rejected their Messiah because he performed that sign, and as he performed it, they recognized it, and then yet they turned back from it because their religious leaders said they should. And they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they committed the unforgivable sin, and they lost the kingdom for that generation. And in response to that moment, back in chapter 12, I told you that Jesus pronounces a judgment on that generation by speaking the words that we saw here in Matthew 23. This three-verse passage I just read is almost verbatim the thing that we see him saying back in chapter 12. Only when we studied it back in chapter 12, we did not find these words there. Jesus said to them that because of their rejection of him, he could not gather them as he wished and be their king as he desired, but rather he was leaving and he was leaving their house to them desolate. And that, of course, refers to not only the temple being destroyed as it happened to do in AD 70, but also the whole nation just 
the fact that Israel would not be in its, in its land anymore. And then he set the terms for the recovery of Israel, the return of, his, uh, of the Lord and the uh, reoffer of the kingdom. He says, you'll have to call out on me. You as a people will have to recognize that I am your Messiah and call on me. When you do that, I'll come back. We studied all that in chapter 12, but we didn't find these words recorded there because they weren't there. They were actually in Luke. We looked at Luke chapter 13, and we looked there to find this statement because what we've realized is Luke recorded that Jesus said these words back at the time of Matthew chapter 12, but Matthew just didn't put them in his gospel at that point. Matthew waits and records them here. Why? Because Jesus said it a second time. In the first occasion when they rejected him in chapter 12, Jesus issued these words because that was the moment in which the kingdom opportunity for Israel was lost. But here he repeats them a second time and it's this time that Matthew chose to record them and he does so here as a way of summing up the conclusion of his earthly ministry and making clear that this is his final statement to the people of Israel. It becomes his parting words, if you will, and as such, they're very fitting because they set the conditions for his return. He says, you will not see me again until, until they meet the terms, and we'll talk more about those as we get into chapter 24. But after this moment, at the end of chapter 23, Jesus says no more public things to the nation of Israel. He goes to the cross, silent like a sheep going to its slaughter, and his ministry to Israel, his public ministry, has now completed All that there is now is the one-way trip to the cross, into the grave, and out. We know that story, and we're gonna be studying it, of course, in the weeks to come. But there's also a period of preparation remaining for his disciples. In fact, uh, in spite of the fact that Jesus says so little to the public, he has a lot left to say to his disciples in private. In fact, two of the most important teaching moments in all the gospel are about to follow in the chapters to come, in the next 36 hours of Jesus' life. The first of those is an extended teaching on the nature of the current age and how it will progress after Jesus departs and particularly how the end of the age will come about. That's what we're gonna study now and starting in chapter 24. And then following that, the second major thing he does is teach his disciples about the communion meal in the context of that final Passover supper that he has with them. Those are the two last teaching moments he offers his men. First, let's get into the the one we're gonna study now, chapter 24, of course. We call it the Olivet Discourse. It goes 24, chapter 24, and into chapter 25. Uh, It's called the Olivet Discourse because it was delivered while Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives, and that's where we go now. Open with me in chapter 24, verse one. We read, it says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. All right, well this is the opening here. It sets the stage and we need to do a little bit of background work as we get into this. First of all, you remember he's been in the temple now for three days teaching, as we said. And every night, as was his custom, When he finished in the temple, he would leave the city, leave the temple, exit out the east side of the city, out the east gate, which then took him directly down into a valley that was on the east side of the city called the Kidron Valley. And he walked down that road each day at the end of the day, walked up the other side of the valley, which is the Mount of Olives. He would cross over the top of the Mount of Olives. Ultimately, about a quarter mile later, he'd find his way to a little town called Bethany where he would spend the night probably staying in the home of Lazarus and Martha, we believe. 
And then every morning he'd wake up again with his disciples, make that journey back into the city and continue teaching. But now here it's Tuesday afternoon. It's been a long day. It's been a stressful day with the religious leaders and the like. So he's walking out of the temple. He's got his disciples in tow, of course. And as they exit out the east side of the city, the disciples engage in a little bit of uh, sightseeing. They are taking in the amazing view of this structure called the Temple Mount, the temple itself, that Herod had built. And Herod's temple was one of the most impressive construction projects that's ever been undertaken in all of the history of humanity. Uh, There are massive foundation stones that, that support this retaining wall around the Temple Mount that hold all this dirt that then holds the temple and, and so on. Uh, these stones are in some cases 60 or 70 tons each and we still struggle to understand how they were formed and moved and placed into, into position and so on with such precision. This building was the longest and most complex building project of any that Herod undertook, which is saying something because Herod is known as the great builder of his age. And in fact, it was not completed in his lifetime, not even close. In fact, it wasn't even completed in Jesus' lifetime. This temple wasn't finished being built until 40 years after Jesus died. And then ironically, it was destroyed by the Romans barely five years after it was finished in AD 70. But here you are in AD 28, much earlier than that, and so it's still under construction, although much of it had been done by that point. And so the disciples, like everyone in Israel at that time, are truly fascinated with what's happening around them, watching this building project unfold and looking at the grandeur of it, the ambition of it. And so there they are with Jesus, they're walking out, and they do what guys do. You know, they gawk at the building, they take a look at it, and they're fascinated with it. And they pointed out to Jesus, which I always thought was an interesting moment, right? As if Jesus hadn't noticed he'd been teaching in it for the last four days. But anyway, they talked to Jesus about it. They say, hey, Jesus, check out the temple. It's cool, isn't it? And Jesus responds in this very abrupt way. Now, we can understand his mind is on other things. He's about to die, and he's not looking forward to the process for obvious reasons, and he's thinking about what it means, and he's trying to figure out, I'm sure, how he's gonna convey all that to his disciples. And they're oblivious. So they're pointing out the building to him, and rather than offer any kind of you know, complimentary response, he looks at them and he says, do you know, this massive structure one day will be torn down stone by stone. Jesus' prediction uh, would have been, I mean, on the verge of unbelievable. If he hadn't been the Messiah, they wouldn't have believed it. But because he is the Messiah, they're struggling with this. I mean, I want you to imagine for a moment you're walking down you know, in New York City one day and someone points out the World Trade Center towers to you and says, do you know there's a day coming when these two buildings will not be standing but will be torn down stone after stone or brick after brick? You know, you'd look at that person and you'd say, you're nuts. Uh, You couldn't imagine a scenario that would produce that outcome. And yet, of course, we know it happened. And these men, knowing that Jesus is Messiah and therefore believing his word, are stuck in this strange place where They don't think he's wrong, but they don't understand how he's right. And so naturally, they start to question what he's saying. And their questions go in an interesting direction. They don't simply ask, how could this happen? They go beyond that. And they start asking questions about the end of the age. And that makes sense when you understand what they were thinking. These men were naturally assuming that any kind of event with the magnitude and the potential to bring down a structure this large must be indicative of the end of the world. 
And especially when you consider the building and what it was for, it was God's temple. It was the home of of God. If God allows his own temple to be destroyed in that way, wouldn't it mean that the end of the world was coming? That was their conclusion. And so, in hearing the statement Jesus made, their mind goes to a series of questions related to the end of the world. And we see that starting in verse three. In verse three, they say, we, we read this. It says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now Matthew says the disciples came to Jesus privately. That would indicate that he said what he said. Jesus said what he said as they exited from the Temple Mount. But in the time it would have taken them to walk down the Kidron Valley and back up to the Mount of Olives, that's at least 15 minutes or so. So uh, they're spending the next 15 minutes or more contemplating what Jesus said, maybe afraid to ask him, and if there's a crowd around, they certainly don't want this conversation to take place with a bunch of other people listening in and wondering what's going on, so they wait, and when he gets to the Mount of Olives somewhere, they stop, and there's a private moment, and that's when they come to him, and they ask him a series of questions, and these questions are gonna serve as our outline for the next two chapters, which means for the next several weeks of study. So we need to get this outline right if we're gonna understand what follows, and I'm gonna take you through it here in a couple of steps. Let's open with the uh, beginning of the the questions by looking at the passage uh, that we're studying here in Matthew 24, verse three. So you see in Matthew 24, verse three, on your screen, you see the first of those questions underlined. When will the temple destruction happen? That's the first thing they asked, and I think that's the obvious starting point. If I were to tell you that the World Trade Centers were gonna fall brick by brick or so on, I'm sure your first thought was, when is this gonna happen? So that you're not standing next to it when it does, right? And they wanna know that too. Then the second thing they ask him is, well then when will be the signs of your coming? That's question number two. Now keep in mind that they didn't know Jesus was leaving yet. So when they say his coming, don't think that they mean the second coming of Christ because they didn't know there was gonna be anything other than the first coming. They mean the term differently than that. They mean as in coming into your reign, starting your reign as king. Because for now, they'd only seen him walking around the earth in, in robes as a humble man from Nazareth. They keep waiting for him to assume his position as king. So the way they're speaking here is, what will be signs of your coming into your reign as king? But in our case, we know that's essentially equivalent to the second coming because that's when Jesus will reign. So in their minds, they didn't understand the distinction, but it's all the same. Then the third question they ask is, what are the signs of the end of the age? And of course, that's the re- that, that question follows naturally from an assumption that Jesus is gonna reign because they knew from their Old Testament prophets that the Messiah's reign starts a new age and an old age ends. We'll talk more about that when we get into the rest of this chapter. All right, so those are the questions that Jesus is asked. Now you see three of them right there, but I said there were four. And the fourth one doesn't appear in Matthew's gospel. That's why we don't see it. We have to go over to Luke's account to find the fourth question. Let me jump over to Luke chapter 21. And in Luke chapter 21, you find a complimentary passage. This is the same moment, the same conversation, but Luke records a different set of questions. He gets one of the questions that that is in Matthew, the one when it says, when therefore will these things happen? That's the same as the first question from Matthew. But then Luke skips questions two and three. He doesn't include them. But what he does give us is an extra question that Matthew didn't give us. This is why we have multiple gospels. And if you look at chapter 21, verse seven, 
there's this addition of what will be signs when these things are going to happen. That is, what signs would tell us, Jesus, that the temple is about to be torn down? So let's put both of what we learn in these passages together into a single list. We have in this list four questions. We have first, when will these things take place? That is, when will the temple destruction happen? Then we have from Matthew's gospel, what are the signs of your coming? And then lastly, from Matthew's gospel, what will be the signs of the end of the age? And then, from what we learned in Matthew, we have kind of a sub-question, I call it. We have one in which it's, what are the signs of the temple's destruction? I'm calling that 1A, but if you count them all, there's four there, right? And virtually everything Jesus says in what follows in chapters 24 and in 25 will be in response to these four questions. And we're gonna spend weeks, as I said, looking at this discourse, and these four questions will serve as the outline for our study. But before we start that, there are a couple of quirks to the Olivet Discourse that you have to understand if you're going to interpret Jesus' answers correctly. First, in addition to answering these four questions, Jesus gives a fifth answer to a question that the disciples did not think to even ask. And he will give the answer to the question, what are not signs of the end of the age? So Jesus adds this extra question. I've labeled it four because I labeled the earlier one 1A, but altogether, as you see, there are five now. So Jesus gives the disciples a little bit of advice about what not to consider a sign, and this ends up being very helpful, as you'll see when we get into the study, because some of the true signs are pretty similar to things that you see every day, all the time, that are not signs. So he wants to disambiguate these two before he gets into the details. That's the first thing you need to know, that even though there were four questions, there's actually five answers. And then secondly, the second quirk is that Jesus does not answer these questions in the same order that they were asked. And this ends up being the most important detail you need to understand if you're gonna interpret this chapter properly. Jesus reorders his answers according to his own priorities in order to make sure that what he says is well understood. And if you wonder why this would happen, you just have to think about how parents work with children. Quite often, if a small child asks you a series of questions in rapid fire succession, uh, you know, mommy, can I go to my friend's house and can I eat dinner there and can I sleep over and whatever, you know, you're not necessarily going to answer them in exactly that order. You might choose to start with the last one and say, first of all, you cannot sleep over tonight. Uh, then you move on and you answer the ones you care to in whatever order. That's just the way we sometimes work when we're faced with a number of questions at once. And Jesus does the same thing. He reorders them here because the order is a better order for his purposes. Now, the order that he answers them in is this. Let me show you how he orders them. You have to see on this chart, watch how they move and you'll see how he moves them around. That's the order in which he answers them. He starts with his own extra answer, so he begins by saying, guys, let me tell you what are not signs. Then he moves in the order of question number three, then one, then one A, and then back to two. Now you may ask me, well, how do I know this? How would you know that this is happening? Well, as in every case when we want to interpret the Bible correctly, we look at context. And when you look at the context of what he says, and you look at it carefully in relationship to the questions, it becomes clear which questions he's answering. So we'll do that with you as we go through this text in the weeks to come. We'll follow this outline in that order and you'll see clearly what Jesus is saying. Now, if you studied this chapter, 
or any of the related chapters of Scripture that deal with the end times or the events of the end of the age, then you probably know there are some strongly differing opinions in the church about how we should interpret what Jesus says in this chapter. And I'll tell you, much of that disagreement centers on when these events happen or on the relative relationship between them. And I suspect many of you have heard some of these debates. Maybe you've even participated in some of these debates. And if so, I'll bet you've wondered at times why there are so many different opinions, why there is so much disagreement about this particular area of Scripture. And I'm here to tell you that one of the reasons for this endless disagreement is found in the simple explanation I just offered you. That is, your interpretation of the Bible can go sideways if you miss important details in the text. Like, for example, the detail of Jesus reordering the questions. If you overlook that detail, but you just charge ahead through the text thinking that the order is different than it really is, well, you're gonna be on the wrong track, obviously. And your interpretation is gonna go sideways as a result. It's kind of like the old analogy of a ship that leaves the port headed for some other port across the world, but its rudder is set a few degrees off from the correct course. And at first, it's a very minor deviation, barely noticeable. But when you leave it there long enough, you end up hundreds of miles off track by the time the journey is done. And that's exactly what you see happening in interpretation of this chapter among others in the Bible. People who make one or more simple mistakes, little things, things you barely notice at first, and uh, perhaps they made that mistake in their own interpretation, or maybe they were taught that mistake from somebody else. But because they made that little mistake, their ship ends up a long way off from the truth by the time they're done. And therefore, the key to getting our ship, so to speak, back on track so that we end up on the right interpretation when all is said and done, the key, it turns out, is learning to recognize that error, learning to realize where the mistake went bad. You know, if you've ever done a complicated math problem and you think you're doing it right and all of a sudden at the end you get the wrong answer, you know that feeling, right? You look back and you wonder, where did I go wrong? And typically, it's somewhere early on. And you find a little mistake you made early and everything else just suddenly fixes itself, right? That's a lot of the way in which interpretation of the Bible goes wrong. And sometimes, you know, you may encounter someone who has got the knowledge to show you that little mistake. And when you accept that input and you refactor after that, all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I can see it now clearly. Now I know where I went wrong. Unfortunately, in my experience, that doesn't happen a lot. You know why? That correction, I'm saying, does not happen. You know why? Because most Christians cannot explain why they believe what they believe. Most Christians simply don't understand what they've been told, they just know what they've been told. And so the debates that will ensue between differing opinions just become intractable, with no one able to explain the mistake that divides them on a particular passage of Scripture. And when you cannot work out with someone where they've gone wrong or where you've gone wrong in the details of Scripture, then you cannot sort out wrong from right. You cannot make progress. So our study of the chapter that's following is not merely a pursuit of the knowledge of what it says. I want you to understand, just like the study of all scripture, we're trying to understand what God revealed so that we may share that truth with others, so that ultimately we unite in the body of Christ. Now I know there are those in the church who would advocate that we should not study this stuff. I mean, actually there are those who would advocate a continuing ignorance of this area of scripture. And if you want proof of that, let me read you a quote from a well-known megachurch pastor. I'm not gonna give you his name, but this is what he wrote in one of his uh, books. 
He said, today there's a growing interest in the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. People ask, when will it happen? But just before Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples asked him this same question. And in response, he said this, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He wanted them to concentrate on their mission in the world. He said, in essence, the details of my return are none of your business. What is your business is the mission I've given you. Focus on that. Speculating on the exact timing of Jesus' return is futile because Jesus said no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And since Jesus said he didn't know the day or hour, why should you try to figure it out? What we do know for sure is this. Jesus will not return until everyone God wants to hear the good news has heard it. And Jesus said the good news about God's kingdom will be preached in all the world to every nation, and then the end will come. If you want Jesus to come back sooner, focus on fulfilling your mission, not figuring out prophecy. That was the quote. That quote perfectly illustrates the attitude that I'm referring to. This attitude that wants to perpetuate both ignorance and division in the body of Christ. First, from what this man said, he clearly does not understand scripture himself, at least not in this area, because he actually misinterprets the very passage he just quoted from. He introduces his comments saying, there is a growing interest in Christ's second coming, implying it's a bad thing, but then he goes on to quote a passage that's referring to a different event, not the second coming. And the Bible itself actually says we're supposed to have interest in these things. Hebrews 10.25 says we shouldn't forsake our own gathering together as is the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another. And he says doing so all the more as we see the day coming near. That is, we're supposed to be looking for these things, anticipating these things, encouraging one another in these things. The second thing you notice in that passage, I read that, that man's quote, he attempts to prove his point using a scripture verse, as I said, that wasn't talking about the Lord's coming, but about something else. We're going to study this in Matthew 24. But here's my point. Look at how that man did his work. He took a wrong turn in his own interpretation, thinking that Jesus said we're not to know about something that the Bible actually says we are supposed to know about. And because of that wrong turn, because he got off track in his understanding, his conclusion is an advocation for Christians to stay away from that entire area of Scripture altogether. Look, it's no surprise that it confused him, but that doesn't mean we have to be confused with him. This pastor has labeled study of end times as, quote, speculating on the exact timing of Jesus' return. Look, friends, endeavoring to understand what the Bible teaches about the end times is not the same thing as trying to time the return of Christ. But more importantly, this man never explains why then does the Bible give us so much eschatology. If it was not supposed to be studied, why is roughly 40% of the Bible prophecy? It makes no sense. There's a passage in 1 Thessalonians 1 I want to end with today. And in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, rather, Paul says in one passage uh, that we should study and understand some things about the return of Christ and about the church's future. I'm not going to get into that today. We'll cover more of that later. But look at how he opens that passage. That's what I want you to notice. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says this, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul begins a section that talks about 
Christ's return for the church and our movement into glory with him. He begins that by saying, you ought not be uninformed about this. And why? Because I don't want you to be without hope. What is this hope he's talking about? The hope he's talking about is the hope of resurrection, the hope of a future with Jesus. So if you're living in a world filled with difficulty and trial, well, that's what we're doing right now, isn't it? And you're trying to keep your mind on eternal things and on the glory that is to come. Do you know what the best way to do that is, according to Paul? It's to study it and understand it. That is, it's so easy to become distracted and preoccupied with what's going on here. And if you do that, you have the potential to lose that hope of what is coming, of why death is not our enemy, of why better things await. That's why we study things like chapter 24 of Matthew. It's supposed to remind you of the glorious future that you have in Christ. And the Christian's hope is the hope of knowing this is not the end of us. So the end of us, the end of this world, the end of the age is all about understanding our hope. Paul gives us that assurance and although ironically in some Christian circles today we're told that we shouldn't study this or that it's a division to study this, the truth is actually 180 degrees the opposite. We shouldn't shy away from this, we should dive into this. And as we do so, if we do our work properly, we'll come to an answer that unites us. And in the uniting of the church, we'll be stronger to do the work God has given us. And if you're concerned about divisions as you study this with me, let me assure you, as I like to say, just because some people are confused about this doesn't mean we have to be. We can be confident that the reason this was given to us is so that we would understand it and we'll find our hope in it. I pray that you'll be with me through this study. We'll come back next week and we'll begin the first of these questions and move through it steadily. It won't necessarily be a study filled with exhortations to obey or to put away sin, but at the end of the day, what it will ask us to do is be a more serious disciple for Jesus, and that is important too. Let's pray about that as we finish this morning. Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts for a study that challenges us to think about eternal things. Help us to avoid mistakes in our examination of the text. Bring us to a united understanding so that we would be stronger together in our expectations for the future, not divided because we don't understand them. And then, Father, as we face a world that's uncertain and scary at times, use what we learn to make us a bolder witness for Christ, someone who's willing to go out and speak the truth and not afraid of what might come in response. Because we know, Father, that's why you've given us the time here that we have, and we want to use it to the most of our ability to glorify you. And we thank you for the privilege that it is to have that opportunity and a church that will strengthen us for that work. Thank you for this time, Father, and lead us back in weeks to come. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.